Today's passage comes from Acts 21, verse 1 to 14. 1 to 14. And when we had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. When we had come in sight to sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload its cargo, and having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city. And kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemaeus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven and stayed with them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. And coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hand and said, Thus says the Holy Spirit, This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people urged him not to go, to Jerus- uh, go up to the Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, What are you doing, weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we seized and said, Let the will of the Lord be done. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. I think it's uh, Pastor Hugh's first Sunday as uh, the official intern, so let's give him a hand of encouragement. Uh, and thank you, Davina, for that uh, just encouraging prayer. I uh, love the, just the clear voice you have. Um, if you're new to the church, please make sure to fill out a welcome card uh, so we can you know, extend our greetings to you throughout the week. Uh, we love to connect with you, uh, but it's really good to see all of you. Uh, today is Palm Sunday, but um, I won't be giving a typical Palm Sunday message, okay? I'm, I'm really, I think, not, not usually a keeper of special days. <laughs> I'll do maybe Easter Sunday and Christmas, but uh, every Sunday is, like, special to me. Every Sunday is Resurrection Sunday, right? So we're always celebrating Jesus' resurrection. But uh, today we're going to continue with our uh, series in the book of Acts, and we're in Acts chapter 21. And I wanted to uh, just give you the, the basic context of our passage today uh, before we you know, get into the nitty-gritty details, okay? Uh, here, here's the basic context. You know, a- after Paul's, um, well, a- after he completes his you know, three missionary journeys, his plan is to return to Jerusalem so that he can you know, report to the leaders there. But everyone is basically telling him not to go to Jerusalem. Paul, please, you cannot go because God has made it very clear that Paul was going to suffer greatly and and possibly even die if he did go, right? But in spite of everyone telling him not to go, Paul decides to go anyway. 
And so I, I wasn't expecting this, but uh, surprisingly, this passage, it serves as a helpful case study on how to discern God's will, okay? And so my plan for today is to highlight some key principles that ought to govern our own decision-making uh, as we seek to faithfully seek to uh, pursue God's will in our lives, okay? So um, that's my goal, <clears throat> but I, I do want to warn you also, uh, please do not expect God to answer all of your practical life questions through this message because one of my points is that God actually doesn't guide us in such a superficial way, you know? In other words, he doesn't tell us exactly what to do you know, in, any given, in every given moment, right? I mean, how convenient it would be for us if we woke up each morning and just looked into a crystal ball or a mirror on the wall, right? And, and God just told us exactly what to do each day. I would love that personally, but God doesn't operate that way, you know? He doesn't tell me where to shop or what to buy or like what emails to ignore or respond to. He didn't tell me who to marry exactly. I had to sort of discern that, you know. Uh, he didn't tell me exactly, you know, where I was supposed to send my kids to school next year or what job to take. I had to discern that. It, it ended up boiling down to like a church in Maryland and, and our church here, and I had to make a decision. You know, if... if God actually did give us all the details, you know, as we looked into a, you know, crystal ball, then how in the world would we be able to actually mature in faith as God's people? We would not know how to wrestle with God in prayer, for instance, right? We wouldn't know how to grow in wisdom. And so I just want to be clear. If you have this very urgent question in your mind and you want God to answer, he may not answer you directly, Okay. You may have to exercise some wisdom in the process. Uh, here's my simple outline for today, uh, part one. <clears throat> uh, the difference between God's revealed will and God's secret will. Okay? And I want you to know like, what, what we as God's people should be mainly focused upon as we live life. Okay? God's revealed will or God's secret will? Right? Which one do you think it will be? Don't answer just yet. Okay. Part two how the early church and the Apostle Paul sought to discern God's will, okay? And whenever you hear the word discerning God's will, uh, it should cause you to think, okay, it must not be God's revealed will because that's, that ought to be clear, right? Discerning God's will is really a matter of discerning his secret will, right? What church to attend, perhaps, Okay where to send your kids to school next year, like those kinds of things. God did not reveal those things to us. You have to discern. All right, let's get into this. And um, Number one, the difference between God's revealed will and God's secret will. And so today we start with a brief theology lesson, okay? You guys like theology? <laughs> Deuteronomy chapter 29, verse 29 says... I think after, hopefully after this, this next five, ten minutes, you'll appreciate theology at least. The secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. And so for clarity's sake, let me use 
uh, two categories that are quite common, you, you, commonly found in the field of theology, okay? First, we have what's called God's secret will, okay? Now, in our confession of faith, God's secret will is referred to as God's decreed will, right? It's the will he decrees. I like to call it God's sovereign will. I, I, I prefer that name. But this is everything that God had sovereignly decreed before the foundation of the world was laid, right? It's basically everything that he has ordained to take place in this world, right? Both the good and the bad, right? Both the blessings and the curses of life. Everything that actually comes to pass is within the domain of his sovereign will, including COVID, (laughs) including these past two years, including all of the social unrest that the whole world is experiencing right now. All of that is part of God's secret will or his decreed will, his sovereign will. So his sovereign will is oftentimes extremely hard to deal with. It's hard to endure through. But the secret things belong to the Lord our God, right? It's, it's, it's within his rule, and realm, and we, we cannot presume to know what God's secret will is meant to be in the next minute or in the next hour. Yes, I plan to provide lunch for the whole church, but who knows? Something may happen as Joyce is making way over here. You know, who knows? That, that's all part of God's secret will. So we cannot be preoccupied with what's not meant to be revealed to us. Okay, which brings us to God's revealed will. God's revealed will is sometimes referred to as God's preceptive will because it's based on God's precepts, okay? Precept is just another word for God's law or his word, right? So basically what God has revealed to us in his holy word is his revealed will. Let me give you some examples. You know, do not murder very plain example, but it's true. Do not murder as God's revealed will. You know, uh, unfortunately, every single day, people are murdered. That's part of God's secret will, right? That's a mystery to us all. Um, but he declares to us that we shall not murder, okay? Another example, the love of, the, love of money is a root of all evil. Therefore, do not serve money as your God. That is part of God's revealed will to us. 1 Thessalonians 4.3 says this. God makes it very clear as to what his will is because it says, this is the will of God. This is my will, he says. And then he says, your sanctification is my revealed will to you. That you abstain from sexual immorality. Right? Don't get any clearer than that. Right? He says, this is my will. And so, as Christians, we're to receive God's revealed will, and then we are to make wise and appropriate decisions based on what he reveals to us. And every, a lot of questions are just naturally answered in that way. Should I indulge my mind in pornography? Well, if you believe in God's revealed will, then guess what? Your answer will be an immediate no, of course not. Should I subscribe to that particular YouTube channel or Insta channel that's showing me inappropriate things? The answer should be no. Should I wear provocative clothing? 
Well, God's revealed will tells us that we should value modesty, and so so we should we try we should try not to, you know, draw so much attention to ourselves. Should I move in with people of the opposite gender when I'm not even married to them? The answer should be no, you young people, right? God's revealed will says, do not be yoked with an unbeliever. Okay, that's his revealed will. Then should I date an unbeliever? Right? The answer should be obvious. Should I marry an unbeliever? The answer should be obvious. God also reveals to us that we're sinners in need of a Savior. So then when we place our trust in Christ, guess what? We're obeying the revealed will of God. Right? Praise the Lord whenever someone does that. And some people have wondered how I navigated through COVID and through all the prickly cultural issues of our day the past few years. And, you know, the answer is rather simple. I focused in on what God's revealed will for us is. Okay? I didn't focus on speculation. I focused on what God's revealed will is for us. And once I did that, the issues did not seem as complicated anymore. So as you can see, you know, God reveals to us a great deal, and he reveals to us what matters to him the most. Pastor Kevin DeYoung in his book, Just Do Something, wrote this, the most important issues for God are moral purity, theological fidelity, compassion, joy, our witness, our faithfulness, hospitality, love, worship, faith. And he just gives a few examples, okay? And he writes, the problem is that we tend to focus most of our attention on everything else, on things that don't matter as much to God. You know, we obsess over the things God has not mentioned and may never mention, while by contrast, we spend little time on all the things God has already revealed to us in the Bible. Isn't that true for the most part? Another author puts it like this. The Bible does not tell you which person to marry, right? And we're not, we're not saying that's not important, but, you know, you're, again, you're to discern, discern who to marry through the wisdom God gives you as your mind is shaped by the word, and this author makes that clear. He does not, the Bible does not tell you which car to drive, whether to own a home, where to take your vacation, what cell phone plan to buy, or which brand of orange juice to drink, or a thousand other choices you must make. What is necessary is that we have a renewed mind that is so shaped and so governed by the revealed will of God in the Bible that we see and assess all relevant factors with the mind of Christ and discern what God is calling us to do. That's how you grow wise in the Lord, okay? And this is very different from constantly trying to hear God's voice directly and, and you know, assuming that he says this, and you do this, and, oh, I think he's saying this, and so you do that. I briefly touched upon this last week, but this is the main reason why I spoke so strongly against the IHOP movement a few years ago, as well as elements from the YWAMS movement or YWAMS teachings in the past. Now, the two aren't necessarily connected, but there is some overlap. Okay? Every time I hear someone come back from some kind of event and say, oh, they taught me how to hear God's voice, I'm like, you know, let's talk about that. <laughs> what does that mean exactly? God wants us to faithfully live by his revealed will, 
okay? And, and not be so preoccupied with his secret will because the secret things belong to the Lord. Amen? I hope that clarifies at least some things for you. All right, let's, let's, let's kind of go, go on our passage today. Uh, let's dig into this a little bit. So part two, how the early church and the Apostle Paul sought to discern God's will. Uh, let's look at verse four together. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And, and this next part is interesting. It says, and through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Okay, and what, what tends to throw people off there is the expression, and through the Spirit, that they were telling Paul not to go. Right? So I know at least one commentator that actually interprets this to mean that God was directly commanding Paul not to go into Jerusalem, and that Paul actually disobeyed God when he did. And it's actually a, a reputable, you know, very well-respected pastor and scholar that, that wrote that. But I, I think that that's the worst possible way to interpret this expression. I mean, it would make no sense in view of how things eventually unfold. You know, if Paul directly disobeyed God's clear command, then we would have been told that that was the case because Disobeying as, a, as an apostle, if you disobey God's clear command, that's not a small deal. I mean, that would have been made clear through the narrative. So what's happening here is that, see, God already revealed to Paul in the previous chapter that something terrible was going to happen to him if he did go into Jerusalem. And what God is doing now in this portion is he's, he's revealing the same reality to a few other disciples. But see, that was the extent of the revelation, right? That something terrible was going to happen, right? The revelation was not, Paul, you cannot go or you, you shall not go, right? That piece was separate. That was their response to God's revelation, right? They, they responded to this revelation differently than how Paul chose to respond to it. That's what we're seeing here. So this, this is not a question of one party disobeying God's clear command or, or God giving contradictory messages to different people. No, God's revelation is the same for everyone. However, the way people chose to respond to God's revelation, that's where there was a divergence here, right? The way they practically applied God's revelation differed. And in the case found in our passage today, the, the main factor, the driving factor was that these people, they had a deep and personal affection for the Apostle Paul, right? I mean, it's amazing how much they really loved and admired, they respected the Apostle so much, and, and that swayed them in one direction, right? They didn't want him to go. They, they didn't want him to die, right? They, they knew that the church would greatly benefit if he continued to minister in their midst, we see another example of this in verses 10 and following, and it speaks of the prophet Agabus, who actually reenacts what's going to happen. You know, he, he plays it out. Um, coming to us, he took Paul's belt, he took his belt, and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, 
This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. See, that's the extent of the revelation. It doesn't say that you can't go, but, but when we heard this, verse 12, when we heard this revelation, we and the people there urged him not to go. Right? That, that's the response. And I look at this scenario, and, and I'm thinking, like, how, how could we blame these people for, for you know, saying what they did or thinking what they did? I mean, they, they absolutely loved Paul, and they didn't want him to die. Of course they would respond this way. I mean, I, I hope that you would do the same for me as well, brothers and sisters. Like, if God ever revealed to me that, that if I ever entered into Ukraine on a mission trip or North Korea, that I was going to die would it be really appropriate for you to respond with, oh, it's clear that you're going to die, then you should definitely go, Pastor. You know, it's good, good knowing you, right? Would that be an appropriate way to respond? <clears throat> See, it wasn't really their place to tell Paul that he should definitely go, right? This was a burden that Paul himself had to bear, and he had to decide if this was the right time for him to die or not. In Matthew chapter 10, verse 23, Jesus did give his early disciples permission to flee persecution by saying, when they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. Right? So this, this is a pattern that's been sort of set in place by Jesus himself. Like if, if there is persecution, of course you're, you're allowed to flee, that, that the gospel would go forth to the next town. And as you should remember, brothers and sisters, during Paul's missionary journeys, we did see Paul face persecution and flee, not just once, but multiple times. So he, he's been used to fleeing, you know, being chased out of a city to go to the next one. He's used to that. He fled before. He was allowed to flee, right? And he fled also because he knew that there was still plenty of work that God wanted him to complete before he was called home. But see, this time... This time, things are different for Paul. Right? This time, he concluded in his mind that it wasn't a time for him to flee. You know? Again, there's no evidence that God directly told him that he is to go or not to go to Jerusalem. In other words, there was no revealed will of God for him to fall back on. So he had to wisely discern what it is that was appropriate for him in this moment. What it is, God's secret will, what, what that was, right, at the time. So let me offer three governing principles that Paul would have used to make this decision to go to Jerusalem. And I think these principles will help all of us, right? Uh, these principles could apply to any of us. Number one, Paul knew that the presence of suffering and the possibility of death did not mean that God was necessarily closing a door or putting a roadblock up for him to avoid. That makes sense? He didn't use suffering as an excuse to flee. It wasn't an automatic thing for him. Yes, if there was persecution in the past, he did flee, but see, it wasn't, it wasn't automatic. Oh, things are going to be hard, so I must go the other. It wasn't like that for him. You know, when Jesus first called Paul to be his disciple, what, what did Jesus say? Do you remember? Jesus said, this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name 
to the Gentiles. And they, I will show him, Jesus says, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. And so Paul was very aware of what his calling was, which is why he was able to endure so, so much hardship and suffering throughout the years. But I was also reminded of what he wrote in the letter to the Philippians. Okay, and I'm going to uh, quote a few verses um, throughout the next few minutes here. But first one is from verse 8. Uh, I believe this is chapter 2 or 3. It says, I, I have, for, for his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Okay, in order that I may gain Christ, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and, catch this, that I may share his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. So Paul, he wanted to follow his Savior's example, and that's why he was able to view even suffering in a redemptive way. Suffering was not something to automatically avoid. So suffering gave him actually the opportunity to share in Christ's suffering and become like him in his death and resurrection. It was an opportunity for him. And I share that because <clears throat> there's such a contrast, right, in how we choose to live and how we choose to make decisions. It's unfortunate but it's also true for me often, you know. In our weakness and in our sinfulness, we often make decisions based on how safe or how easy or how comfortable the path will be for us. Isn't that true? In other words, whenever we see an obstacle or a roadblock or something that's going to make our lives just even a little bit uncomfortable, we interpret that as a clear sign from God that we should definitely avoid that road. I confess I've done that a few times, several times, many times. But I'm here to tell you this morning, okay, that you and I need to start thinking about life differently. Because as Christians, it should be abundantly clear to us by now, especially after 36 weeks spent in the book of Acts, that the presence of risk or danger does not automatically mean that God wants you to reverse course and go the opposite direction. That's not true. Brothers and sisters, there should be no form of hardship or suffering that immediately deters us from serving the Lord. I hope not. Because if that's true, then there will be no one left to serve. Right? Everyone would have fled. Secondly, second governing principle, okay? Paul knew that in order for the gospel to bear greater fruit, there had to be believers who were willing to fully give up their lives for the Lord because he was aware of what's been sometimes called the law of the harvest, okay? The law of the harvest. If you never heard of that, the law of the harvest is based on John chapter 12, verse 24, or you can simply say the law of the harvest is based on Jesus' death and resurrection. But it, John 20, 12, 24, it goes like this. Unless a grain of wheat falls,
falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. It's interesting, right? There's this, there's this like physical law that's built into the world. It's built into creation. But it's also a spiritual law, right? Displayed through Christ's own death and resurrection. And, you know, throughout history, we've seen the ripple effects of that, right? This law has been clearly made manifest for all to see, which is why historians have testified to the fact that the blood of the martyrs has been used time and time again as a seed for revival. Every time there was, you know, a Christian declaring the name of Christ and being martyred, there was fruit that bore out of that. There were no vain deaths in Christ. And the Apostle Paul knew this very well, which is why he was able to write in Philippians these words as he was being held prisoner by Rome. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. In other words, look, I'm suffering and I may, I may die, but I know that what's happening to me, all this suffering and hardship, possible death, is going to be used by God to advance the gospel. It also says that by my imprisonment, many have been emboldened to speak the word without fear. That's another effect of his his suffering. People see, oh, the Apostle Paul, even the Apostle Paul is suffering for the Lord, then, then who am I not to suffer? That kind of thing. Right? I'm going to be as bold as him. It kind of gives you the courage. I don't think uh, most of you know this, but my father passed away at the age of 49, just a few months shy of 50. And I didn't realize how much that would affect me, but as, as I've been inching closer and closer to 50, it's affected me, Right? I mean, in my mind, he was a much stronger person in every sense of the word. Stronger physically, a better athlete, you know, jumped higher, ran faster, (laughs) uh, more gifted academically, uh, better speaker, you know, just everything. I thought was just, just a better guy, right? And so there was always this lingering question in my mind of whether I would be able to make it to 50, honestly. And I know that may sound irrational to uh, some of you, but I confess it's, that's been part of my personal struggle these past few years. And I think it partly has to do with the fact that, you know, God, God used my father's death to really break me, okay? And not just break me, but to build me back up again. And so in a way, I experienced this law of the harvest in a deeply personal way. You know, it was through my father's death that I actually became more alive. Of course, there was it's like a, a season of darkness. So I, I literally I felt I felt like I was dead. You know, I hit rock bottom, but then God He sort of He resurrected me, spiritually speaking. But I don't know if that would have happened unless my father died. So I, 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 never, I never thank the Lord for my father's death. That would be inappropriate. But it, it's undeniable that God used my father's death to do something miraculous in my own heart and life. 
And so I, I always wondered, okay, in the back of my mind, as I've been inching closer to 50, how my own children would be spiritually awakened without some major crisis of their own. And there have been plenty of moments when I've wondered, even out loud, even in the presence of my staff right here, <laughs> that, you know, perhaps my, my living presence has made their lives too comfortable, okay? And every time I say something like that or something close to it, Pastor Shion's like the first one to say, how morbid, stop that. <laughs> so don't worry, God has placed Shion in my life to remind me <laughs> that everyone's story is unique. And my calling as a father <laughs> is to be a faithful father, a faithful parent as best I can until... God, in his right timing, chooses to call me home, okay? Whenever that is going to be, I leave that to the Lord, right? But I still wonder, you know. And the Apostle Paul clearly understood that for the church to flourish, there had to be people who were willing to give up their lives for Christ because the blood of the martyrs is and always has been the seed of revival throughout history, that too is undeniable. Thirdly, and lastly, here's a final principle that I want to share with you. Paul's ultimate desire was to honor the Lord, okay, whether by life or by death. And he, brothers and sisters, was ready to die. He was ready to die. He was not afraid of death. He was ready to die. I, I really believe, as I've been just uh, enduring with you these past two years, I really believe that one of my jobs as a pastor is to prepare you and to train you to the point where all of you would be able to say, I am ready to die. Whenever that time is, I am ready. Listen again to what Paul writes while he's imprisoned in Rome. I will not be all, at all ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. And here's a famous passage. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Okay. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. In other words, it's not an easy option for him. It's not an easy choice. My desire is to depart to be with Christ, for that is far better. Brothers and sisters, if we fear death so much, not only will we not be able to die well for the Lord when that time comes, okay, I'm sure you have a picture of what it means not to die well, like images, like scenes in movies, right? This is how oh, you should never die, like, you should never die as a coward, right? You should never die just kind of begging for your life in a selfish way, right? But if, if you fear death so much, not only will you not be able to die well, but you will not, able to, you will not be able to live well for the Lord, okay? You see how that works? You will not be able to live well because in an effort to avoid death, you will inevitably end up compromising your beliefs left and right. It's going to happen. It's inevitable. If your ultimate goal is to just survive, 
of course you will compromise in the end. You cannot fear death if you're a Christian. Parents, it's really worth asking ourselves, have we been unintentionally teaching our children to be fearful of death? I want to pose that question to all of you. I know that you you never intentionally do that, okay? If you intentionally do that, then you really have problems. Have you unintentionally have done that? How many of us are truly ready to die if the Lord calls us home today? And how many of our children do you think have the confidence that they will be fine if they died today? Let me offer another brief exercise for us, right? There's another question for you to think about. If you were a Christian in Ukraine and the Russian machine started destroying your city and committing unimaginable atrocities, what would you do? Would you leave or would you stay? This, this really is a question for the men. So men, let me ask you, what should be done? And I ask the men mainly because It should be obvious to all of us that no one would fault any woman or child or elderly person from evacuating the country, right? All good men would tell the women and children and elderly to leave. That's what men would do. When there's persecution, you're allowed to leave and you're allowed to stay, right? Some women may choose to stay, but no one's going to fault them for leaving, But in the case of able-bodied men, it's not so cut and dry in that scenario, is it? If you are able to fight, it would definitely be a noble act for you to decide to stay and fight for your country. Furthermore, if you're a leader, not just any, any guy, you know, not just any citizen, but if you're the leader of the country like Zelensky is, I think virtually everyone would agree that it would be wrong for him to abandon his role as president and flee the country while his own people are suffering. You know, not too long ago, we saw this happen with the Afghan president. So it's an interesting contrast, isn't it? Picture of a coward and a picture of like a, a courageous man. Right? It's a stark contrast. It's like in Afghanistan, as the U.S. troops moved out, what happened? The Taliban moved in, and then what happened next? The Afghan president fled immediately (laughs) with like a plane filled with cash. (laughs) And uh, he served as as an example of what a a real coward looks like. And the country just immediately collapsed. In contrast, you have this president, Zelensky, of Ukraine, doing the exact opposite and inspiring his fellow citizens to stand up and fight for the country's freedom. Right? To me, like, he gives off this like, William Wallace vibe. Right? <laughs> He's like the modern-day Braveheart. And the Afghan guy is like the uh, Scottish nobleman in the story. He sold their souls to England. So as I've reflected upon what the Apostle Paul must have been experiencing in this moment, I'm thinking he, he must have made a similar assessment, right? This just was simply not the right moment for him to flee, right? He knew what time it was, so to speak. He knew that this time, the persecution 
was different in nature, right? It wasn't going to go away. Like, if he fled, others would suffer in his place. And as one of the main leaders of the church, he could not allow that to happen. He couldn't be that guy who just flees the scene while others suffer. And this is the kind of leader you should pray that I would be for the church. And this is the kind of Christian you should all aspire to become as well. And it's because the disciples saw this kind of unwavering resolve the Apostle Paul had, it says they stopped with the, don't go, don't go, we don't want you to go. In the end, this is what Luke records, verse 14. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased. See, we means Luke was there. Luke was part of that group saying, don't go, Paul. We don't want you to go. We stopped saying that. And instead, we said, let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. And this is what our basic posture before the Lord should be as well. You know, when, when God's will is clearly revealed to us, we are to faithfully obey God's word without question. Amen? But when things are a little fuzzy, because God has chosen to keep things somewhat vague and uncertain, then we should expect there to be more than one opinion on the matter. Okay? There can be a little disagreement here and there. You know, Paul, don't go. Paul says, no, I'm going to go. Don't go. Go. Okay. Let the will of the Lord be done. Let the will of the Lord be done. So as, as God's people, the cry of our hearts in the end should be, let the will of the Lord be done. But remember, this is not God's revealed will. We're talking about God's sovereign, his secret will. That will, may the Lord's will be done. We should be able to still say that knowing that even though evil may encroach, that God in his sovereignty is able to bring forth good from evil and knowing that in the end, God's purpose will always prevail. Because we know that, we can say, let the will of the Lord be done in the end. Let's pray together. Dear Father, when Jesus was asked to drink the cup of wrath, he prayed, Father, remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. And because Jesus drank from that cup, we who belong to Jesus no longer need to be afraid of your judgment and wrath. So Lord, given this reality, may you grant us the daily faith and courage we need to not fear man or what he can do to us, but to stand firmly rooted in the truth of your word and confess, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. And in all things, whether in life or in death, may we be able to honor you as our God. Lord, help us to faithfully endure during these confused times we're living in. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.